Hello, Giles here. And knowing that we have a family audience and the purple people often include some very young people, just to say that today's episode does include some language that some people may find uncomfortable or offensive. Hello, you're listening to Something Rhymes With Purple with me, Susie Dent, and someone sitting opposite me in an incredibly, as you would expect, bright and tinselly jumper is Giles Brandreth. And we are about to, well, as you would expect, we're about to foray into the language of Christmas and also the beliefs of Christmas. Giles, how many Christmas jumpers do you actually have? Tis the season to be jolly. Yes, I've got a lot of Christmas jumpers. I've stopped counting how many I have, because at this time of year, the Christmas jumper has become a huge thing. And Mm. because I pop up on television wearing colourful knitwear anyway, anybody who thinks they've got an interesting Christmas jumper sends it to me. So I have every kind of Christmas jumper. Some of them are commercial. Some of them are from charities who've been in touch. Save the Children which is a wonderful charity, they sensibly raise money every year and quite a few million pounds every year by getting people to wear jumpers on a particular day and donate. I think it's something very modest, a couple of pounds if you're a grown-up, a pound if you're a young person, to, to the cause and, you know, take a picture of you in your jumper. So it's become a huge, huge thing, the Christmas jumper. And I have got lots. Every kind you can imagine. I've got some with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and there's a three-dimensional red nose made like a pom-pom on the front. I've got, well, I mean, you you just name it, Santa jumpers, snow person jumpers. Actually, Mm -hmm. mine look very much like snowmen, but, but all of that. And I'm supposed to be a bit of an authority on Christmas because over the years, I've written a number of Christmas books. And the one I got out for today, I see... It was published first in 1975. It's called Brandon's Christmas Book. And I'll just read you the beginning, and then I will shut up, I promise you, uh, Susie. It says in the beginning, there's always been a Christmas. And then it goes on to say, actually, that's not quite true. There's almost always been a Christmas. Certainly, there was one long before Christ was born. Though, of course, it wasn't called Christmas then. The deep midwinter has been a time for jollification and celebration for thousands of years. And even if Adam and Eve didn't hang out stockings in the Garden of Eden, the countless Christmas traditions we now take for granted began to become established not so long after the fall. And then I begin to discuss the ancient Romans and Saturnalia and all that. Oh, well, we will learn some of some of this. I only discovered very recently that Tolkien, the wonderful J.R.R. Tolkien, every December would write a letter which would arrive with a stamp from the North Pole for his children. And inside would be a letter in this bit of spidery handwriting and beautiful colour drawings from Father Christmas. And they would all tell these wonderful tales of life at the North Pole. And I can't wait to read them, actually, because you can you can buy the collection of them. And, you know, I was just reading one of them. There have been no adventures here and nothing funny has happened. And that is because Polar Bear has done hardly anything to help as he calls it, this year. And then it says he ate something that disagreed with him last November and was afraid he might have to go to hospital in Greenland. But after living on warm water for a fortnight, he suddenly threw the glass and jug out of the window and decided to get better. So I had no idea about these, but I do. there is a company, which is much more commercial, that can generate 
a letter to arrive as if it comes from the North Pole for a child and you give them your child's details and their best friend's name. And actually what comes back is really gorgeous. Well, I love all this. I I love the idea of Father Christmas. I don't know the Tolkien letters. I do know, of course, Raymond Briggs's Santa Claus, the, the beautifully illustrated cartoon version of his life and times. And there have been many movies featuring Santa Claus, and there have been many novels, including one by me called Who is Nick Saint, which is all Ah. about somebody who has a Father Christmas fixation, who's called, Mm -hmm. by chance, Nicholas Saint, Nick Saint. What does it lead them to do, Craig? Uh, Well, indeed, you have to read the novel to find out. (laughs) Can we get, given that here we are, the whole purpose of Something Rhymes With Purple is to explore words and language, can Mm -hmm. we get to the root of Father Christmas? I mean, because long before he was called Father Christmas, uh, he's evolved into Father Christmas. Earlier than that, he was initially Santa Claus. I mean, unpack and unravel some of that for us. Well, yes, the figure of Santa is based on lots and lots of folklore traditions that have sort of carried carried him in various forms of evolution throughout the centuries. But they all are pretty much to do with St. Nicholas, who was the English figure of Father Christmas and his Dutch equivalent of Sinterklaas. Well, you say, can I interrupt you already? Yes. I mean, yes. absolutely, I'm with you on St. Nicholas, but I don't know that the English element comes into it. In our family, we always felt that the Christmas season began on the 6th of December, which is the feast of St. Nicholas. Yeah. Now, nobody, and I, I've looked this up everywhere, no one knows very much about the original St. Nicholas, except for the fact that he was the Bishop of Myra, which is in Lycia, which is in Asia Minor, some 1600 years ago. And the the best known legend about him is he saved three young girls from uh, assault by throwing three bags of gold as a dowry through their bedroom window one night. Yeah, And he's the patron saint of all sorts of people, including uh, these young women, pawnbrokers, sailors, children. And it's in his this last capacity that he's associated with Christmas. But yes, he, I only mentioned the English figure in terms of Father Christmas, that specific ah, name. I'm yes. so sorry. That, yes. I, my apologies. So, yes, fine. And, of course, you're absolutely right in his Sinti Klaus in, is it a Dutch dialect? Um, Sinterklaas, I think that might, yes, possibly dialect, but definitely Dutch. And I, I suppose the... The image that we celebrate, you know, the sort of portly, jolly, red-cheeked, white-bearded man, sometimes with spectacles, with a red coat and a white fur collar and cuffs, etc. That originated apparently in North America, that particular image, um, during the 19th century. And of course, you know, every single Christmas it's entrenched in the imagination even more. There is, and I think this may be an urban myth, that the reason Santa Claus or Father Christmas is dressed in red because he featured, he was usually dressed in green until yeah. he featured in a, this, this may be urban myth, in an advertisement for Coca Cola at the yeah. end of the 19th century, 1880s, 1890s, he appears in a red costume. Mm. Uh, and that's where the red became established. For some reason, just what's popped into my head is the random fact that the name Pepsi, Coca-Cola's rival, comes from dyspepsia because it was thought to cure indigestion. Oh, that is interesting. Yes, actually, it popped into my head, but that's what this podcast is all about. Do we know where Coca-Cola comes from? Uh, From the coca plant, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose so. That also gives us cocaine. Well, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. not that we're suggesting anything untoward about Coca-Cola, which I'm (laughs) sure we love, and Pepsi too. 
other Don't brands may be available. <laughs> yes. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, when it comes to St. Nicholas, as you say, a patron saint of many people, other stories, you mentioned the one about the um, rescuing three girls, other stories involve him calming a storm at sea, saving three soldiers from execution, chopping down a tree possessed by a demon, and so on and so on. So lots of wonderful tales. And, you know, it's, it reminds me of the story behind the sanctum, I suppose, sanctification of St. Martin of Tours, which we've covered before, which is attested to by many that he, do you remember he met a poor, he was a Roman soldier at the time and he met a poor beggar in the street and it was freezing, freezing temperature. And he took off his cape or his cloak and he cut it in half and gave one half to the beggar. And that half was then kept as a holy relic and it was kept in a shrine. And that shrine was housing the capella, the little cape. And that shrine eventually became any place where something holy was revered and it gave us chapel as well as a cappella, etc. All from that idea of a little cape. Sorry. Uh, as I say, I'm going off in these little excursions, but it's the way that my mind works. We like the way your mind works. But just to be clear for people who try to work this out, yeah. St. Nicholas is the original Santa Claus. Yes. When, which is fine. We understand that. We understand he's this saint who was alive a long time ago and did good works and has become associated with children. His feast day is the 6th of December. All that is clear. Hmm. We understand that Santa Claus is a kind of version of St. Nicholas from Dutch, Sinti Klaus, the same yeah. as Santa Claus. How did they make the leap from that to the same sort of figure becoming Father Christmas? Because that, yes. I mean, that's got no relationship. Father is a father. Christmas is the mass of Christ. They've got no relationship yeah. to Santa Claus. Why is it the same character? Um, well, I think they began to be conflated. But Father Christmas actually comes from a very different tradition in oh. folklore that developed in, in the late Victorian period. They, well, not the first personification of Christmas that has taken various forms over the centuries. But he was, until Victorian time, well, Let's let's just say that Father Christmas himself seems to first appear in the mid-17th century, and as I say, to be really popularised during Victorian times. And it's said that he appeared in the aftermath of the English Civil War, when the Puritans had vowed to abolish Christmas because they thought it was papist, didn't like any of its customs. And so the royalist opponents, the pamphleteers, wanted to bring back all of these old traditions because it helped their cause and they adopted old father christmas as the symbol of the kind of the good old days and it's said that that was when the real tradition came about and then as i say in victorian times it's actually father christmas was associated more with adult feasting and merrymaking no particular association with children or chimneys or reindeer or um, anything but it was as later victorian christmases became more family centered that father christmas became a bringer of gifts and it was when the idea of Santa Claus began to take hold in England in around the 1850s, I think. Father Christmas began to take on of some of Santa's attributes, and that's when they became particularly closer together. And I think, am I right, that it's an American poet who gives us the reindeer and all of that. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, it's one of those poems, not the one that begins to the night before Christmas and all through the house, nothing was stirring, not even a mouse. It's another of those poems by Moore. It's going to come to me where, where we, where we get this idea of uh, the sledge and the flying through the air 
and the the Donner and Blitzen, because someone has to come up with all of this, don't they? Okay, I'm going to look it up now. You then. do. Yes, a visit. Actually, it is most commonly known as the night before Christmas. Ah, good. Called A Visit from St. Nicholas, but it was most commonly known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. Published anonymously, but later attributed in 1823, but later attributed to Clement Clark Moore. Oh, yes, Clement Clark Moore. It's all coming back to me. Go on. Okay. And it is saying here, and I'm reading this from Wikipedia, the poem has been called arguably the best known verses ever written by an American and large, is largely responsible, says Wikipedia, for some of the conceptions of Santa Claus from the mid-19th century to today. And do you remember what happens? No, tell me. So it's the night of Christmas Eve, family is settling down to sleep. A father hears noises outside on the lawn, looks out of the window, sees Santa Claus, St. Nicholas, in a sleigh pulled by eight reindeer. He lands Father Christmas or Santa Claus on the roof, comes down the chimney with a sack of toys, and the father is watching the visitor deliver presents and fill the stockings hanging by the fireplace, so perhaps arguably behind, I don't think ultimately behind Christmas stockings, but perhaps the idea of hanging them by the fireplace. And then the father and Santa Claus share this sort of conspiratorial moment before Santa goes away. And as he flies away, he calls out happy Christmas to all and to all a good night. Charming. Lovely. Absolutely lovely. At what age did you realise that Father Christmas, well, actually not realise because I like to think Father Christmas is alive and well, but at what age did you believe wholeheartedly in the idea of presents coming down the chimney? Well, I'm with you as well. It's a quite it's quite a complicated thing, this, actually. It I is. don't know whether we should discuss this, whether there was a, a trigger warning at the beginning of the episode to forewarn people that we would be actually talking about the truth about Father Christmas. You have to make a leap of faith. I don't know what accept- the truth is. Uh, well, exactly. We don't know what the truth is. We hope that there is a traditional Father Christmas. Yes. That's what we hope. And I I can't... Re- What's interesting is I don't really remember... It was never a revelation to me when I suddenly thought, um, you know, I woke at two in the morning and saw a figure at the end of the bed. Uh, in my case, we used to... I mean, from an early age, I was so spoiled as a child. I very... Re- I mean, I put out a stocking, but what came back were pillowcases, stuff full of things. I mean, I was, were were you spoiled as a little girl? Yes, very much so. Yes, pillowcases and always traditionally holds an orange. Absolutely. Chocolate coins. Or or is it a satsuma, a tangerine? Ours was also wrapped in silver paper, rather curiously. And a few nuts as well. Yes, a few walnuts. I'm not sure if I really managed to open this. Oh, and also we had, I remember chocolate coins. Yes, chocolate coins. In in some Gold. gold gold paper exactly and then yeah just oh it was so exciting but i did i used to be quite scared of father christmas so i was slightly scared of falling asleep where i think a lot of children would be sort of wanting to stay awake so they could actually meet him i was i was just like no i don't want to meet him i just want to hide under the covers but it's such a a lovely idea and do you does michelle still give you a stocking or your grandchildren do they give you stockings yes all that still goes on lovely it's a it's a funny old world isn't it where we still do all that sort of thing but i remember john quite early on in our podcasting days and possibly we discussed this when we first did a Christmas episode I remember you saying to me firstly that Christmas day is one of the few days when you stop working and you hate that you hate stopping working so we've already talked about how you feel defined by your work as a lot of people do and the second thing was that you and Michelle would sit down at a table and have something like beans on toast well both of those are true in fact I have often worked on Christmas 
birthday and occasionally to keep the family happy, I've engaged my wife to work with me. I mean, 50 years ago, there's a radio station in Britain called LBC. Mm -hmm. And it was then just a London radio station, I think, 50 years ago. And my wife and I, we were among the first presenters. And we did the Christmas Day show on in the early years, the uh, first couple of years of this radio session. And I loved that. And then in the 1980s, when I was working for TVAM, which was the first ITV, the first commercial television station, we did live shows on Christmas Day. And again, I loved that. Yeah. And I think I do know people who quite like being, I mean, there, there are surgeons who traditionally will go to the hospital because they're the surgeons. They're the ones invited to, you know, use their skills with the knife to, to carve the turkey. Um, and I, my sisters were all, well, two of them were nurses in their day. And they used to say it's actually quite fun to work on Christmas Day, to feel you're doing something useful, particularly if you're, yes. you know, like a nurse, you're actually really doing something useful. I have to say, yeah. Yeah. And because I'm so much in the habit of work, and my work is mostly fun, I do feel a bit restless. Yes. Uh, but we have tried non we We have had baked beans on toast. We've also done the microwave Christmas, which I'm sure I've told you about, <laughs> which was not a big success because it didn't last very long. We all had a microwave, us and the three children, we all had the microwave meal. We popped into the microwave <laughs> at one o'clock. By 10 past one, Everything was over because uh, there's we no eating, washing up. There's none of no the washing ritual. up. We threw it away. We ate it yeah. out of the out of the thing. We had plastic cutlery. Uh, not a good idea. Why? Is it just expedient? Well, who does the work? Nobody really wanted to do the work. Okay, and that's why we now let somebody else do the work, and we go to the local pub. That's right. You said yeah. we will be at the at the Red Lion on Christmas Day. Where will you be on Christmas Day? Uh, I will, I'm not sure. I may be here or I may be with family in Wiltshire. And uh, it's leaving it a little bit late to decide, but I've covered all bases in terms of food, etc. Because being a vegetarian, I'm very easy to cook for. I just have a delicious nut roast or make a nut roast or something. But you I love all easy the trimming. Only if the other people are vegetarians too. Do you take, well, that's true, you take but your I, own nut roast? Well, I, can, I have done in the past, but the rest of the family go, go for the turkey. So I've got that as well. So um, I'm, all, I'm all, I think, all sorted. And I think in our previous Christmas episode, actually, I gave a lot of my absolute favourite words around, uh, around Christmas. And they're not always full of joy and cheer, if you remember. But that just talking about the food made me think of belly cheer, which is the food that makes you very happy. And that's what you know, a lot of Christmas is about, isn't it? Well, let's get on to some alternative words for Christmas and Christmassy things. Did did we discuss last time Yule why is it called Yule, ah, the Christmas season? Yeah. Yule was the name of a pagan festival, which preceded ah. the Christian festival of Christmas. Uh, it's a Viking word, and it may be a sibling of jolly, which would be very nice. Mm -hmm. uh, Yule, and if you if you take the Y and make it a J, jolly. So, yeah, so that was a pagan festival before. But we still talk about Yule logs. There's actually a lovely, a Yule's hard, or is it a Yule shard, which is somebody who leaves the office on Christmas Eve without having accomplished the work that they were supposed to. Mm. There's obviously we have the Yule logs. We have the Yule hole, if you remember. The Yule hole? Remember the Yule hole? <laughs> Tell me about the Yule hole. Sounds rude. The Yule hole is the notch or hole on your belt that the, is the furthest along that you have to resort to after Christmas. I, I do remember that. Yes, and that's yes. centuries old. I love the fact that that we needed it, even in the 18th century. The the 22nd of December, anyway, is the, is the winter solstice, isn't it? When the, yeah. when the sun is farthest from the equator. 
And I think it's, we go back for Yule to the old Norse people, don't we? Vikings, yeah. Vikings. And they, yeah. they were lighting giant fires to, to the grim god Odin. Yeah, Odin. And Thor. Um, yeah. And that's where the festival of Yule is. It's a kind of, it's a kind of midwinter romp for the darkest day to give it a little bit of light. Mm, um, it's a lovely, lovely thought. The Druids, I think, had a festival called the Festival of Nola, N-O-L-A-G-H. Okay. And the Greeks, they had uh, the birthday of Ceres and Hercules and Bacchus all around this time of year. The Egyptians apparently claimed this as the feast day of Horus, the son of Isis. So people have been celebrating basically midwinter. And yeah. probably the Christians chose this time of year because nobody actually knows, do they? I mean, it's marking the birth of Jesus, but nobody actually knows that he was, I mean, amazing coincidence that he was born on what turns out to be Christmas Day. But nobody knows that it was actually um, the 25th of December, do they? Um, no, I don't suppose they do. In fact, I, I can give you the serious answer to that. I think it's okay. Pope Julius I who yeah. actually decided around the year 350 that the birthday shouldn't be. There were various other days before then when Christ's birth was celebrated, 1st of January, 29th of March, 29th of September. But Pope Julius I, he declared 25th of December is the day, and they've stuck to it ever since. Unlike Easter, which of course is a movable feast, but Christmas isn't. Though people celebrate Christmas at different times. I mean, there's some cultures where they celebrate it on the 6th of December. Others, where they do it either Christmas Eve or just after Christmas. There are a variety of days. When do you do, do you give out a, a present on Christmas Eve? I know some families give out all presents on Christmas Eve. I think the royal family give out their presents on Christmas Eve. And mm -hmm. my mother, who loved buying Christmas presents and giving Christmas presents, there were so many in our family that we used to get a present a day, literally from the Feast of St. Nicholas to Twelfth Night. That's from the wow. 6th of December till the 6th of January. One a day is a lovely idea, actually. Well, it's quite good because you appreciate it more. Yeah. Uh, I have a grandchild, my grandson Kit, who has a birthday on the 24th of December, which is quite challenging. And his parents are very yeah. keen that that is kept as his birthday. And he has you know, distinctive presence on that day. Uh, and then Christmas Day, a whole new set. So he goes wild with it. But when do you give out the presents? One on Christmas Eve, that is usually traditionally something like a Christmas onesie or lovely socks or something that will make Christmas Eve a little bit more snuggly. But then the most of, most of them are after breakfast on Christmas morning. Very good. Look, we haven't taken a break yet. And I want to know about Chris Kingle. I mean, Chris, who's a person? Chris <laughs> Tingle. Chris Kringle. Am I right? Does it ring any bells with you? Uh, yes, absolutely. Let's return to that. Let's return to that. And also, oh, I've got some riddles ready for you. <laughs> yes, pull a cracker if you want to. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> We're taking a break. Susan, please, can you tell me what wanderlust means? Well, it comes from German and it means a strong desire to travel. And Jazz, I know you love to tell anecdotes. So do you have a good travel story? I had an amazing time in Iceland. I went pony trekking and the person who was in charge of the pony trekking told me that in those days, on a Thursday evening, there was no television in Iceland because people were supposed to be at home 
reading books. Well, let me tell you about Explore Worldwide. They organise small group adventures that are led by local tour leaders so that you can fully immerse yourself in local knowledge whilst exploring a new country. The most important part of the holiday is respecting local culture and environment. And Explore can help you find expert tour leaders that can get you off the beaten track and into the heart of your adventure. Whether it's a food and wine tour in the hilltop towns of Tuscany or a walking tour in the rice fields of Vietnam, Explore take care of everything, putting the quality of their local tour leaders front and centre so you'll truly understand the wow factor of where you are. If you're thinking about your next adventure, head to exploreworldwide.co.uk to find out more. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Hello, welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple, where Giles Brandris and I are chatting about the lexicon of Christmas and the traditions that go with it. And Giles, before the break, you mentioned, well, I call him Chris Kindle, or Chris Dingle we have as well, don't we? But lots of different versions of this. Beloved figure in the Christmas tradition in many countries, but began with Germany, where there was supposedly an elderly man called Christkind who brought presents to children on December the 24th. And there are lovely services for children, aren't they, where they have Christingle masses where they put a, a, a candle in an orange studded with, is it cloves or various things that they that they bring along? It is. And lots of legends um, attached to Chris Kindle, which is Christ's child. And I can see your shoulders shaking there. Are you giving me a ho, ho, ho? I am. Ho, ho, ho. Why, why does he do that? A ridiculous thing to do. I don't think that enhances the reputation of Father Christmas at all. Ho, ho. Well, it's the deep, hearty laugh of jolliness, isn't it? But you know what? In Dickens' time, the person going ho, ho, ho was not Father Christmas, but actually mischievous elf or goblin. So in the Pickwick papers, you will find a story within a story in which a man called Gabriel Grubb encounters a creature. Ho, 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 laughed Gabriel Grubb as he sat himself down on a flat tombstone, which was a favourite resting place of his, and drew forth his wicker bottle. A coffin at Christmas, a Christmas box. Ho, ho, ho. And then he hears that repeated uh, behind him, which is a little bit spooky. Well, we owe a lot to Charles Dickens in terms of Christmas, the feeling of Christmas. I mean, Christmas isn't Christmas without somebody doing a version of A Christmas Carol which was such a huge success in Dickens' day and has become almost synonymous with Christmas. So, I mean, those Victorians, and I think I'm right in saying uh, the Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, brought quite a few of Christmas traditions over from Germany. You know, the Christmas tree he popularised. I know they existed before. Uh, And the Christmas card is a Victorian tradition, I think, uh, as well. I mean, do you still do you send them any longer? I'm afraid. I wish I could say I, I send them to people for whom it really matters to get something. But to most of my friends who are my age, no, I don't. How about you? I'm afraid, exactly like you, it's become a you know. I used to send yeah. literally, you know, thousands. Well, lots and lots and lots. But now yeah. I don't. And we, when I was a child, we used to have a competition uh, with the Christmas cards. 
that we'd, we'd gather all the Christmas cards together and there'd be, uh, my, my father would judge this or, or organize it. There'd be the best card with a religious theme, the best card with a pagan theme, the wittiest card, the most vulgar card, <laughs> the card with the best inscription, the card with the worst inscription. And we go through all the cards, usually after Christmas, uh, possibly on New Year's Eve, but occasionally on Boxing Day, if we were a bit desperate, we would go through all the cards. <laughs> and then chuck them on the fire. Yeah. Exactly. Well, some of our lovely, lovely purple people who may or may not be celebrating Christmas, of course, have been in touch. Should we, should we um, have a look at some of their emails? Yes. And if anybody has sent us a Christmas card, yes. thank you. Thank you. It, may, it hasn't reached us yet. I, I mean, I, I do love a Christmas card, but I'm sure you've sent us one in your minds. Do you, do you know who Henry Cole was? No, remind me. He worked, I think he worked at, eventually, what became the Victorian Albert Museum. Okay. Um, but but he was the person who was credited with really popularising the Christmas card in the 1840s. Uh, he conceived the idea and got an artist called John Calcutt-Horsley to create a Christmas card, which is generally regarded as the first Christmas card, uh, printed uh, by Jobbins of Warwick Court in Hoban, and it was then hand-coloured by a professional colourer. And it, it was published, I think, in 1843 by a friend of Henry Cole's. Anyway, they, they printed, I think, no more than a 1,000 of them. And each of the cards sold for a shilling, which is a lot oh, of money yeah. in Victorian times. Yeah. But since then, I mean, imagine if you are a Christmas card manufacturer, how business has been affected in recent years. Well, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Anyway, we, we haven't had Christmas cards, but we have had correspondence. Who has been in touch? Yes, and we, we may have had Christmas cards. We just haven't had a chance to have a look at them yet. We may have had hampers. Thank you if you sent us a hamper. <laughs> I'll be surprised, but very grateful. Oh, I love Christmas hampers. Uh, okay, so this one is from Vashti from a very sunny northern Cyprus. Vashti, we are, I'm sure, all very envious. Hi, Susie and Giles. As always, thank you to you both for the fabulous podcast that keeps me laughing and learning, though generally forgetting, in equal measures. I was wondering how the word caravan used for a train of camels has travelled to become a thing we go on holiday in. I get that there must be something to do with travel, but I'm not sure how it goes from a train of animals to a single vehicle not in procession. As a side question, here the language is Turkish and we have a local beach area called Kevanserai, named because it was a stopping place for the travelling caravans. What would a stopping point have been called in English? Once again, thank you to you both. You're great. From Vashti in a very sunny northern Cyprus. I would have pronounced that word caravanserai, which I feel yes. has almost become an English that word. That is the English, but I think the local beach area is not spelt that way. It's spelt differently. Ah. It's spelt caravanserai. So very similar. But you're right. Let's answer that question first. Uh, we borrowed the word caravanserai from Persian. And originally it meant an inn that was built around a central courtyard and it provided accommodation for travellers along the network of trade routes that crossed Asia and North Africa. So it was a stopping place. And clearly the um, the Turkish word that Vashti gives us is a, is a sibling of that. So that's what we call it in English as well, uh, one of our many borrowings from another language. But for the first question, how did the word caravan travel from that sense of a procession of camels to, you know, to the thing that we see struggling up a hill on our roads. Well, let's start with the, the, the kind of original, really. It was, not, I suppose, non-human travellers, uh, as Vashti says, such a, a train of a pack of animals. And then it became a company of travellers on a journey through a desert, for example, or another pretty difficult terrain. 
And from that idea of a group of animals or a company of travellers, we also then got the idea of a group of vehicles that travel together as in a file. Now, this much I think Vashti knows because he talks about the procession. But from the idea of any large number of people travelling together, it then came to mean a large covered carriage for conveying those people, not necessarily with with animals at all. Um, Often this was in the late 17th century. Um, And in modern British use from the 1930s, it became the recreational vehicle that we know it as today. But the stepping stone that Vashti is wondering about was the fact that you have a lot of people travelling together and they would be housed or transported in a large covered carriage, a single carriage for conveying passengers. And that's how we get to the single sense we have today. Comprehensive answer. Thank you very much Good. indeed. Th- this next question, I think, is is trickier. It says, it's from da- Dan Forth. I don't know if, that, if it's two words. He's Dan Forth, the offspring of Mr. and Mrs. Forth, or if Dan Forth is his full name. Hello, team. I've noticed the phrase mellow yellow appears in James Joyce's letters. Did he coin it? Did it pre-exist? Thank you. Love the show. Dan Forth. Now, I wonder what mellow yellow means. Is it just a description of yellow? Or me- yes, yeah, so not so much letters, a- actually. It's in, in Ulysses. Um, that ah, this is ah. uh, is from. And okay, so let's just start with the mellow yellow that we know uh, it as primarily today, uh, which is banana peel, which is yellow, dried for smoking as a narcotic. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't realise there was a... Fr- ah. I, I mean, this is the first time I've heard of mellow yellow. Yes. Well, don't, don't you remember the, um, the song uh, from Donovan? No. Oh, uh, would you not? Okay, no. I'm going to see if I can play it for you afterwards. Oh, well, well can you sing it to me now? Because you've got a sweet voice and we need a Christmas song. Um, they call me, I said, they call me mellow yellow. <laughs> so it goes on. Uh, that was rubbish. Um, electrical banana is going to be a sudden craze. Electrical banana is bound to be the very next phase. And I'm just mad about 14. 14's mad about me. I'm just mad about a 14. Ash is just mad about me. Yes, it sounds like Donovan was on a bit of mellow yellow, to be honest, looking at the lyrics. But that was how we know it. Our listeners this week may feel that we have been on the mellow <laughs> yellow, if not the mince pies and the rum punch. Well, <laughs> um, yes. So what what is your okay, answer? So that sense, the, the intoxicating sense of mellow yellow is first recorded in the OED from 1966, indeed from that song by Donovan. So you might think then that Danforth is saying, well, hang on a second, it's in James Joyce's Ulysses. Has he found what we call an anti-dating that can be then submitted to the Oxford English Dictionary, whereby somebody excitingly has found an earlier record than the one that's been discovered so far by the OED team. But if you look at Ulysses and you find the mention of Mellow Yellow, you will see that it's a typical example of Joyce's kind of linguistic exuberance in a sentence or a description that doesn't make masses of sense, but which sounds absolutely brilliant and is, which is linguistically incredibly masterful. So here we go. Kissed the plump, mellow, yellow, smellow melons of her rump on each plump, melanous hemisphere in their mellow, yellow furrow with obscure, prolonged, provocative melon smellanous osculation. So, obviously, very physical. <laughs> That's not what I expected virtually on Christmas Eve. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so, Susie yellow, Dent. smellow melons of her rump. And osculation oh, obviously wonderful. means kissing. So, yeah, so that's the classic Joycean. Do we say Joycean? Um, excursion yeah, I think we do. And nothing to do with the mellow yellow that we might be thinking of today. And that is indeed is something that has been of note. But the, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary reference is to the drug. And that is 1966 at the moment. I should have persisted with 
finishing Ulysses. I didn't get very far into it. I certainly didn't get to that bit. <laughs> How wonderful. Kissing her rump. Osculatory. Why is os- I know osculation is kissing. But, yeah, but it comes from the what, Latin why? OS, meaning mouth, us, meaning oh, mouth. Yes, it's like, obviously, mouth to mouth contact. Well, there we are. We'd like to thank everybody who has written to us this year. I mean, thank you so much because you take us down the most extraordinary uh, byways. This episode should have had trigger warning after trigger warning at the beginning. We'd be having James Joyce kissing people's rumps, uh, as well as actually saying things about Father Christmas that perhaps shouldn't be said in public. Because I genuinely considered it and then thought, not this is the Christmas episode. I almost asked you whether Prince Albert really did have a Prince Albert. But let's save that for another one. I think we should. Um, and indeed, if you have something that you'd like to ask that you would dare, Susie, to try and explore for Or <laughs> something for Charles in this Prince case. Albert's Prince Albert, uh, or whatever else, do get in touch, because we for our 250th episode, which is coming up soon, we're going to devote it entirely to you and uh, the most interesting, challenging, amusing questions, queries that you might have for us. So, you know, have a big, small, um, unusual, just get in touch. Our address nowadays is purple people, that's one word, purple people at somethingrhymes.com. And obviously, we'll try to answer as many as we can in what will, we hope, be a very special episode. This episode, I feel the pair of us have been on tipsy cake from start (laughs) to finish, and we've almost got to the finish, which is your trio. Tell me, what three words have you got for us this week? Well, I have a very simple verb, uh, which describes the gathering of people together in a group, which is, of course, what happens at Christmas time for the lucky ones amongst us. And we're all familiar with a constellation, which is a gathering, but there is a verb that you can derive from that, which is to constellate which I think is quite a nice idea. It's to gather together in a group, to constellate. Another word that you would associate with Christmas, to go together with abliguration, which is a horrible word, but it means excessive spending on food and drink. Uh, Haven't we all? Uh, This goes together with this, and it's emacity, and it means a fondness for buying things. So most Mm. of us will feel the results of that, I suspect, in January. And when it comes to the results of Christmas actions, um, here's another one for you, perhaps if you've indulged a little bit too much in the punch that Giles was talking about, you might end up being erubescent, erubescent, which means simply red in the face and a little bit flushed. Which is what Santa, I think, is well, at times, Well, absolutely, yes, you? and he does enjoy all the sherry that we leave out for him. Uh, do you have a You're, I do have a Christmas poem. poem, and of course, in fact, you led me to it because we were talking earlier about the poem A Visit from St Nicholas yes. that I knew somewhere was in my head, and you then said it's by Clement Clark Moore, yeah. and that rang so many bells, and of course it did because it's actually in my book, Brandworth's Christmas book, ah. which I'm not plugging because it hasn't been in print for <laughs> nearly half a century. Uh, but I can't read you the whole poem because it's quite long. But I'll read you the end of the poem because it's at the end of the poem, uh, St. Nicholas, Father Christmas, is described. And see if you can recognise him here. Down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he'd flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, 
a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him, in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team, gave a whistle, and away they all flew, like the down of a thistle. But I heard him explain, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Beautiful. That's really got me in the It's a good one. And I think it's worth it. I'm sure it's available anywhere. You can look it up and visit from St. Nicholas. It'd be a fun one at Christmas for word lovers to get around and get all the family, maybe to take it in turns doing a couplet each. Go round, do the poem. Old and young, get in a circle and print copies of the poem and do two lines each and go round and round until it's finished. Lovely. It's a good tradition. Lovely. Well, we hope you found it lovely as well. It's always a joy for us to share our witterings and um, hopefully some wordy wonders with you. Um, Please keep following us and subscribe to us. Recommend us to friends and family if you can. We would absolutely love that. And of course, you can find us on social media. But more importantly, you can um, email us. Jazz, can you remember the email address? I certainly (laughs) can. It's very, very simple it's purple people at somethingrhymes.com perfect well something rhymes with purple is a sony music entertainment production it was produced by naya dio hannah newton harriet wells chris skinner poppy thompson and he's back with us again which is a complete joy and don't you think he looks like the young santa claus would have looked he's got the big bushy beard hasn't turned white yet um but i think he is a little bit of a santa it's our very own father gully you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.